Howdy. How y'all doing this morning? Good. It's so good to see you. My name is Josh. I am one of the ministers here. If this is your first time, welcome to the Clear Creek Church of Christ family. We are so glad to get to celebrate Jesus with you today. And to all of our friends joining us at home, online, wherever you may be, welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so glad that you're joining us today. And listen, if you are not a part of the church body, But you live in the area. We're going to invite you. You come be a part of this. But if you don't live in the area and you're still not a part of a church body, but there's a good one around you, you can join us some. But we're going to ask you, you find a good church home. You find a place to plug in to be able to, yes, receive, but also to contribute to the mission of God's work in your city. Because we believe that God's people are not spectators, but participants in the mission of God day in and day out. And it's so much more fun to be on the front lines and see what's happening than simply to get to observe from a distance and hear secondhand stories of faith. In fact, that's what this entire series is about. It's about moments where God shows up. There are seven different moments that we've been looking at. We started last week. And so today we're going to continue the series called The Seven Signs, just seven stories of belief in John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4. I want to take you back to a moment where the world utterly changed from everything we had known before. It was a very specific moment on March the 10th, 1876. You say, really? That far back? Yeah, this was a significant moment. And it was a moment that was a world-changing moment when nine little words were spoken. And these little words seem very innocuous, very unimportant until you understand their context. And these were the words. It was simply these words. Mr. Watson, come here. I want to see you. You say, what does that have to do with anything? How did the world change? See, those words were being uttered by a man that we now know as a very famous inventor, but at the time was not nearly as well known. His name was Alexander Graham Bell. And he was calling to his assistant, assistant Thomas Watson. He was up in his laboratory there in Boston, Massachusetts, in the building. And he said, okay, so what? He was calling to his assistant. What's the big deal? It's not that he called to his assistant, but how he called his assistant. He spoke into the strange little device that had copper wires going to a speaker in another room. And for the first time in recorded history, a live voice was carried from one place to another Immediately, This was the very first time of what we would call the telephone. And it's an amazing moment that just captured the imagination, not only of them, but of the world. At the next major world fair, it was displayed and it won first prize because it was such an incredible, incredible invention. And people began to see some of its uses. Now, I don't need to tell you that the first one was not very good. You couldn't go very far in that very first system. Only one could speak and one could hear. But have we noticed things have improved just a little bit on this one? Just, uh, just go ahead, grab your phone. Does anyone else have one of these devices? Anyone carrying around one of these wonderful little magical devices? At this point in the world's history, there are now more cell phones, more telephones than there are people in the world. And these little magical devices, we carry on with us everywhere we go. We use them to look up directions. We use them to surf the web. We use them to make reservations. And yes, sometimes we even use them to call people. But we don't just call people, do we? 
Now we have these things where we can see what the other person looks like in the same moment. So we have FaceTime, we have Skype, we have Zoom, we have other means where we don't just hear, but now we get to see. We are increasingly shrinking the distance between people. But you know, for all of our advances, there's one thing we have yet to figure out how to do. And that's be in two places at the same time time. We may be able to send our voice. We may be able to even send our face, but we have yet to figure out how to be in two places at one time. Wouldn't it be awesome if there was someone who could be everywhere whenever we needed him? Well, that's a story that we find ourselves in and a moment where a man and his family discovered there is one who has never been limited by space or time, but is with us whenever and wherever we need. We hear the story in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 46. Would you please stand with me this morning as we read God's word? John 4, 46 begins this way. Once again, he, that's Jesus, visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. That's what we talked about last week. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who is close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. Notice this phrase, the man took Jesus, how? At his word and departed. It goes on, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was a living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of this sign that there is one who is not limited by space or time, but who, being the word from the beginning, but needs speak the word and everything changes. May we listen to him now and be changed as a result. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's just kind of walk through the setting here because I think it's important that we sort of find ourselves in this moment. So a few details here. Number one, Go to this next slide. Here we go. Jesus has just returned to Cana. Now, Cana is in northern Galilee. It's west of the Galilee Sea, the Sea of Galilee. It's about seven miles north of Nazareth. That's where Jesus was raised. Jesus has just finished his tour of the southern part of Israel in the area called Judea. That's where Bethlehem is. That's where the city of Jerusalem is. And he has been going around 
doing miracles and signs and wonders. Now, John doesn't record all those because he has a very specific purpose for which signs or which miracles he's included. In fact, remember, he calls his miracles signs because he wants us to understand that the miracle is not the point. Rather, the miracle points to the point. A sign isn't the point. A sign points to the point. And all of the miracles are intended to point us to something about Jesus. And John chooses seven signs, seven specific little way markers to point out seven unique things about Jesus. Now, last week we saw what the water to wine represented. If you weren't here, go back and listen because it tells us one unique thing about Jesus. But now he is going to reveal to us one more unique facet of who Jesus is by this sign. And so it begins, it happens while Jesus is back in Cana. By the way, wouldn't you love to be a resident of Cana? I mean, he brings the party last week, and now he is healing people at a word. What an awesome place to be. While he's there, because word has spread, one person shows up who is a royal official from Capernaum. Now, that word, royal official, is this Greek word, basilikos. Everyone say basilikos. Very good. Don't you just love it when you can say Greek words? You're like, Josh, it doesn't sound Greek back here. It sounds like English being murdered. Okay, fine, fine. But it simply means that word basilicus refers to someone who worked in the palace under the king. Now, at this time, the one who ruled that area as the king, although he was not called the king, he was called the Tetrarch, it was a man named Herod Antipas. Now, you've heard of Herod the Great. That was his father. Herod the Great is the one who killed all the little boys in Bethlehem when he heard that Jesus was being born. Now his son, Herod Antipas, is ruling. It'll be Herod Antipas who gives the order to kill John the Baptist. It'll be Herod Antipas who is ruling when Jesus is executed on the cross. And this man who works with Herod has heard news of this man named Jesus who might be able to help him in his dire situation. Now he was most likely a Greek, Roman, or Gentile person if he was working in Herod's palace. And he comes from a city called Capernaum. Again, this is over next to just a northern part. I'll show you a map map of this in a second, but just the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And he hears word that there's one who might be able to heal his son. The 16-mile journey from Capernaum to Cana, if this man can heal his son, the journey is worth it. And so he begins to make this trek. And when he comes to Jesus... He begins this process of becoming a follower of Jesus. And here's all I want you to understand here. This is the big idea. If you don't remember anything else this morning, write this down because this is the big idea. And it's not in your notes. So write this down. Simply this. Faith is a journey to believe that God is near and that you are dear. Faith is a journey to believe that God is near and that to him you are infinitely dear. If you ever wonder your value to God, look at what he was willing to pay for you. Faith is a journey to believe that God is near and that you are dear. And so, like everyone, this man's journey begins. And notice how it begins. It begins with a crisis. And by the way, isn't it true that for many of us, when we came to faith, it began because of some crisis, because of maybe it was someone who's ill There was some sort of disease, or maybe it was a divorce, or maybe it was because of a loss of job, or maybe it was death. See, a lot of us begin the faith journey 
with some sort of crisis and we've tried everything else, but nothing else fixes the problem. So we try Jesus as a last resort. And so faith often begins in a crisis. And I want you to hear this morning, if that's your story, or maybe you're in the crisis and you're kicking the tires of faith, or you're just kind of hoping maybe there's something to this. I want you to understand it is wonderful and okay for your story of faith to begin this way. That is okay. But God loves you too much to let your faith remain in this area. He wants to grow. So notice what happens. The man comes to Jesus and he says these words. He goes and he begs Jesus to come and to heal his son. And because Jesus doesn't want your faith or my faith to sort of be this last resort faith, we're only coming to Jesus for what Jesus can do or because everywhere else we've turned, that doesn't fix it. Because it's more than just Thinking of God as the great fix-it guy in the sky, Jesus presses back with a very strange statement. And this is such a weird reply. Notice what Jesus says in verse 48. He says, unless, say these next two words with me, you people. Have you ever heard someone say, you people? You ever hear someone talk about you people or those people? By the way, you do that in these cultural times and you're likely to be canceled or attacked Who are you calling you people? Jesus evidently get the memo that he was supposed to be politically correct. And so he says, you people, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. Now, when I hear this, if you're like me, you hear this, you go, man, that's kind of a rude way to talk, isn't it? This man has just made a 16.3 mile journey from his home to you, Jesus. His son is laying at death's doorstep. And what is your response? You people. Well, thank you, Mr. Sensitivity. Here's what I want you to understand. Jesus did everything perfect, and his comments were perfectly calibrated for what he was trying to achieve. So there are two things you need to know. Number one, that word you is actually a plural. It's more like you all. Or if you're in the South, how would you say you all? I feel so at home. Thank you. Y'all. He's looking at this one man who has heard news about what Jesus can do. So he sees this man who needs him, who's looking for a sign, a miracle. And Jesus takes that moment to say to everyone else who's following him for the next show he'll put on and says, you people, you're just here for the signs. And unless you see him, you're just not going to believe. And notice, though, he says this while looking at the man. He is speaking to him. Why? He's talking to everyone else, but he's also asking this man a very important question. And friend, this is the question he's asking you and me as well this morning. Will you trust Jesus even if you don't see his miracles? Will you trust Jesus even if you don't get to see the result that you're seeking? Will you still trust Jesus even when the results of the test don't come back the way you hope? Will you still trust Jesus? Because the reality is Jesus is not the cosmic pinball machine that you just put something in a quarter and you get what you want. Jesus is pushing back on him. Faith is starting here, but I want it to grow bigger. And so he says this statement to the man, but notice the man's response and notice how his faith begins to grow. He says to Jesus this, sir, come before my son dies. Come on down. He does not get pushed off by Jesus. Rather, he leans into Jesus. Friend, when you face difficult times, are you pushed off by Jesus or do you press into Jesus? See, it's not that life is going to be easier if you're in Christ. The difference is now you don't have to walk through life alone. 
Do you push against or do you push into him? And I want to show you sort of what this, this would look like. Because he says, come. Very interesting little word there, come. Jesus is in Cana. They're going to Capernaum. This is where he wants Jesus to come. Now, he says come because he has a very specific understanding of how God works. This was the way God and all the pagan gods worked in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you wanted someone to perform a miracle, they were always present when the miracle happened. So in the Old Testament, when the prophets would perform a miracle, they were always doing it in person. So you have Moses, the first prophet, according to scripture, when he stands before Pharaoh, the 10 plagues, he is always present to declare what will happen. He is always there. So he puts his staff into the Nile and it turns into blood. He is there to speak that there will be gnats and there are gnats, that there will be boils and there are boils, that there will be hail and there will be hail. In other words, he is present for the miracle to happen. The two greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, they were present when the miracles took place. So when the boy died, Elisha, or excuse me, Elijah laid down on the boy. When there was to be no rain, Elijah was there to say there will be no rain. And when there was going to be rain, he saw the cloud in the sky. He was present to see what God was doing and to say it to everyone else. Are you tracking with me? You had to be present to see God's presence. Are you following me? Everyone just give me a little head nod, make sure we're all here. Otherwise, I got to start from the beginning and you're not going to get to lunch. It's a sad thing for everyone. So we tracking? Okay, you guys are nodding very well. Good job. But that wasn't just true of the Old Testament. This is also true of the ancient pagan world. Okay, according to the ancient pagan world, there were many, many different gods. And they were all over the place, but they were tribal gods, localized gods. So you'd have a god of this location or that location or this place or that group of people. And even the great big Greek and Roman gods, as big and powerful as they were, they were limited. Who, by the way, just quick pop quiz, how many of you know who the greatest, the biggest, the most powerful Greek god was? Who was he? Zeus, that's right. Mr. Thunderbolts himself, not Thor, but Zeus. He was the king of the gods, and yet he had dominion only over the sky. He did not have dominion over the sea. Who is the sea god? Anyone know? Poseidon. Boy, you guys know your Greek history. Good job. Okay. Can't get you to say Jesus out loud, but I can get you to say Poseidon. Okay, this is good. We'll work on it. And then Hades was the god or the king of the dead. In other words, even the greatest Greek god, the greatest Roman god was limited. So when the man says, come, he has a very specific view of God. I want to just ask a quick question. How many of us have a very specific view of God that is smaller than the picture God gives us in the scriptures? Is there any one of us this morning that if we're really honest with ourselves, we hear what God can do in scripture, but we've limited God to our own personal experience and the experience of the stories around us. And I love how Jesus doesn't rebuke him, but he invites him deeper. And so he says, you come, come on, Jesus, as long as you're there, I'm sure things will work. That's how it's always worked. But notice Jesus here, he responds, it is time for you to take your next step. And in verse 50, he says, go, your son will live. But but, but don't you have to come in? No, no, you go. But, But that's not how it always has worked. I'm telling you, go. Yeah, but the other gods, I'm not like all the other gods. Go. Your son will live. 
And now there's this moment of choice, this moment to find out, will God do what God has promised to do? And I want to show you this one more thing. Let's go back to this. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. Interesting little phrase here, took Jesus at his word. Other translations may say he believed Jesus. See, Jesus says, unless you see, you won't believe. But this man has yet to see, and what does he do? He believes. But we're going to find out there's even a deeper level of belief that's about to happen here. But can you imagine what it must have been like to go on that long journey back home? Let me just show you this one more time. So this is the map. But I want to zoom in now, and I want you to see what it must have been like. This is Cana. And imagine... You've just made a 16.3-mile journey, and now this is your trek back home. Jesus said it'll be okay. Jesus said my son will be there. Jesus said everything's going to work out, but I don't know. What kind of questions would you have on those 16 miles? What fears would you be experiencing? Would you be expecting to come home to cheers or arrive home to the wails of mourners and your wife in black? See... It may have only been 16 miles, but this would have been an eternity. Some of you this morning, you are on this 16-mile journey because you don't know what you will face when you get home, do you? I talked to a a couple of you this week on a a variety of situations. One of you, you're waiting to hear back some results, and you don't know what those results will be. You're on that 16 miles, aren't you? Another family in here, you're going through a very rough situation, and You don't know what it's going to look like. Literally, you don't know what it's going to look like when you get home. And yet Jesus makes this declaration that you think that I'm only this big, but I'm telling you, I can do more than you can imagine. It may not be the way you think. It may not be the way you want, but I promise you there is something that I'm able to do outside of what you've always thought that I can do. And so on this way home, the man goes, and then we come to that moment, the big turn in the story, the moment where everything goes the way we always wanted to go. The music swells. If this was a movie, this is the moment where everyone goes, yay. This is the moment where the music gets bigger. The, the light gets brighter. Because at this point, he's been traveling for about a day and his servants meet him. They're there probably about, go back one slide, they're right about here. And they come with this news. It says, while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that was the exact time. At which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believe. This is the most incredible moment because for the first time in history, someone purporting to be a holy man, a godly man, a prophet, someone bigger than us. For the first time in history, his word changed everything immediately. Time and space had no limitation on him. And it's for the first time in history, people begin to say, maybe, maybe God is not just in Jerusalem at the temple. Maybe, maybe God is not simply just one place over here, but maybe God is truly Emmanuel. God is with all of us. See, the view was if God is here, he can't be over there. And if God is over there, he can't be here with me. But now he gets this picture that maybe God is bigger than the limiting view he had on God for all this time. And I I think about this so much. Some of you have shared with me 
what you've seen on the news or what you've heard from friends about the revival at Asbury College. Any of you heard about this? Man, incredible what's going on in Kentucky. On this college campus just a few weeks ago during a typical chapel, God began to move in a way that for many of us seems weird. And some of us even here might go, I don't really like that. God, could you get back inside your little box? You know, the one we understand and can control. It's like for the first time in some of our lives, Jesus opened the lid and he got out of the box and what started as just a regular chapel spilled into a time of confession, of prayer, of repentance, of singing. And people began to fall on their faces before God, repenting of their sin and calling on his name in a fresh way. And this spilled out from that one little service and now people started hearing about it. Facebook and social media and people began to travel across country. And now if you go, there are thousands upon thousands of people who are still there to this day who are experiencing something that God is up to in that place. In fact, a friend of mine who went, he said, Josh, when I got there, I couldn't even get inside. The line stretched over two miles out. So we would just find a tree to pray under and you'd see parents with little children. You'd see old people coming in their walkers. You'd see teenagers. You'd see college students on their faces in the wet grass before an almighty God confessing his name and calling on him. Quick question. Does anyone want to see that kind of revival right here? And some of us are going, man, I just wish I could get up there because then I could see what God is doing. Friends, I want you to understand The same God who's up there is right here. And his work is not limited to one place or one space or one group. His, a Roman pagan comes to him and finds favor. Because faith is the journey to believe that God is near and that you are dear to him. That you aren't simply a cast off or second notice You're not the little redheaded stepchild of God. By the way, if you're redheaded or a stepchild, I'm not saying that against you. God loves you and God is with you. He's not somewhere else, which means you cannot go anywhere where God is not already. See, the reason Jesus could not come with the man was because God was already there. God is already wherever you're going and God is already with you now. Hear me now, God is not limited to space, but also God is not limited to time. Did you know that right now God is already with you in your future next week? God is already with you at the bedside of that beloved one and you're praying that God will heal the person or maybe you are at the graveside and God is already there with you. There is no place you can go that God is not already. We are like fish swimming in the ocean asking, where's the water? We are Christ followers. We are people swimming in the presence of God. Where is God? He is around you. He is about you. He's not in nature. He is over nature, but he is present. Faith is the journey to believe that God is near. And friend, when we get this, Everything changes. This is what the psalmist meant when he said in Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand, look at this, will hold me fast. Does anyone need the hand of God this morning holding them? He is with you. 
If I say, surely the darkness hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. The question, where can I go where you aren't God? The answer, nowhere. God's present. He loves you. He is near and you are dear. And I want to just give you two quick things as we finish out this morning is simply this, when you understand that God is near and that you are dear, this is the antidote. This is the thing that deals with and will kill fear and sin in your life. Let me show you what I mean. This is the thing that takes away fear. Joshua 1.9 declares this statement. Have I not commanded you? This is God speaking. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Why? Do not be afraid. Why? Do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you where? Wherever you go. Friends, I am not, I know this will shock some of you. I'm not a terribly imposing man. I, I just, I know, hold your gasps. But here's the reality. If I knew that the United States Army, the Marines, the Navy, whoever else, were with me wherever I went, there would be no dark alley or place that I would be remotely concerned with traveling. But friends, we do not have mere mortals walking among us. We have the God of creation who goes before us. When you know that God is not only with you, but goes before you, my friends, this takes away the fear of what tomorrow may bring. Because he's already in it. He has already dealt with the greatest threat, death, Satan, and sin. So that way nothing in all of creation should cast fear on the followers of Jesus Christ. For we do not walk with mere mortals and guns, but with a God of heavenly hosts. And the second thing this does is I'm absolutely convinced that when we get the nearness of God and how dear you are to him, this will absolutely cripple the temptations of sin in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10 says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common or normal or typical to mankind. So it doesn't matter what you're dealing with. If you're dealing with lust, guess what? That's common. If you're dealing with greed, guess what? Common. If you're dealing with anger issues or depression or worry about your life, or if you're dealing with this situation or that situation, it's common. God is not surprised by what you're facing. Is that good news to anyone else? Like, it's good to know I'm not unusual. But he says this, no temptation has overtaken you except what's common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, notice this, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Because you are dear to God, he will take care of you. See, see, when I know that God is not just somewhere there, when I know that God is not just in this room that I come see him on Sundays, but when I know that God is present everywhere, even the allure of temptation goes away. Let me put it this way. Don't raise your hand, don't raise your hand, don't want to embarrass anyone. But how many of us remember those days where there were certain things that you would do with friends or certain things you might be tempted to go see or do? But if your mama was in the room, the temptation ran away. Anyone else? Yeah, my mama, she could make fear. I mean, she would like, the temptation just withered when mom was nearby. 
partially because although she was small, she had a very strong right hand. Anyone catching my drift? And she would use the right hand of fellowship as needed. Scripture says that God is all around us. He is with us and does not draw us to be afraid, but rather when you know that the one who created all things is present, the allure of temptation drops. See, if I can say God is somewhere else, and this is just my own private thing, all of a sudden I have sequestered God. I put him out, but when I recognize he is with me, temptation runs away. But not only does it run, God promises to then say, and because I am with you, I will help you out. This is what the second sign shows, that faith is a journey to believe that God is near and you are dear. Quick question, what do you need this morning? Do you need to know that God is near you? Are you on your 16-mile journey and you don't know what you're facing, but you need to know that God is on his way? This is a promise that God is wherever you are and he is already in all the places that you will be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we do not go alone in life, but you are with us. And I pray for my brothers and sisters, for those this morning who need to know that they are not alone, but you are there and you are in every future moment. I pray that they will embrace that reality, not as an intellectual truth or fact, but as an internal reality that shapes everything. For when we know you are with us, fear flees. And we know when you're with us, the grip of temptation loosens. So now we pray that you will be with us and that we will know it in our heart of hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen.